you guys don't get enough sleep, do you? Right? Maybe even particularly this week, uh, as you have exams leading up to break. Uh, that's also because a lot of you are just starting your night when old guys like me are going to bed. Um, I get it, though. I was in college. I know what it's like. Sometimes sleep doesn't really seem like it's that big of a deal. You're young. Your body can take it. It's kind of a normal part of college life. You just drink another Red Bull, another Monster, some coffee throughout the day. Life goes on. Uh, this past week, I came across a study uh, on our sleeping habits. I thought it was kind of interesting. Here's, here's what the study found. People who average six hours or less of sleep for two weeks or more, six hours or less, two weeks or more, start to experience the same physical and mental effects as someone whose blood alcohol content is 0.1. In other words, if you're sleep deprived to that extent, six hours or less for two weeks or more, your body is literally experiencing the same thing as someone who is legally drunk. You start to have, this is their word, not mine, foggy brain, uh, worsened vision, impaired driving, trouble remembering. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not terribly shocked by that, but here's what I found interesting according to this study. After a certain amount of time of being sleep deprived, your body actually stops forgetting how tired it is. That's what allows you to continue functioning despite being so tired. And eventually, those kind of short-term effects, they wear off and they start to have serious long-term consequences. Among many things, obesity, insulin resistance, heart disease. Now, let me just say something here. I know some of you are thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, dude? I need to get 12 hours of sleep at night. I have no idea. Right? Some of you need that kind of sleep. I get it. But some of you are on the other side of the spectrum. You get 12 hours a week. Right? So some of you get a lot of sleep. Some of you get a... The point I'm trying to make has nothing to do with sleep. The point I'm making is this. If some of us are unaware of the little things that affect our bodies in big ways, a lack of sleep hurts our bodies long term. Might it also be true for all of us, maybe even more than we'd like to admit, that what we see as being a small deal in our lives is actually quite significant? I'll be completely honest. This is how I think about sin a lot of times. I take this kind of, oh, it's not really that big of a deal approach to certain sins in my life without considering the fact that maybe they actually are significant. Maybe those particular sins actually do have a long-term consequence on my life. See, of course, we know that some sins really are a big deal, right? Most of us are willing to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to cross that line. But that's not true for every sin. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you take a similar approach to certain sins in your life. It's not really that big of a deal. And because we assume that certain sins, at least, aren't that big of a deal, they eventually become normal. Maybe we get comfortable with certain things. Certain sins become okay because we look around and we see everybody else doing them. I want you to think, for your, think to yourself for a second. If you're completely honest... If you're completely honest, what are the sins in your life that you've grown comfortable with? What are the sins in your life that you've grown comfortable with? Jerry Bridges, he's an author, a well-known author, wrote a book on this um, exact topic. And, and the title of the book is the same thing that he calls these sins. It's, it's, he calls them respectable sins. 
And Bridges says that the reason that we tolerate these sins, the reason why we tend to think these kinds of smaller sins are okay is because they seem more culturally and socially acceptable than others. And so he goes on to make the point, we all have sins in our lives that we've grown comfortable with. Every one of us in this room right now has a certain list of sins that we've kind of made peace with. I'm going to tolerate those sins in my life because those sins kind of seem okay. They're not really that big of a deal. Sins like consumerism. We justify consumerism because what we look like, what we have, well, that says a lot about us. And we care what that says. Maybe exclusivity. Right? We know that, that we should be more inclusive, but it's far more work. It's way less convenient to hang out with people that aren't like me. I'd rather just hang out with people that act and think like I do. Greed. Closely related to consumerism. We always want more stuff. Laziness. Anger. Impatience. Discontentment. The list goes on. You know, sometimes these things just don't feel like that big of a deal. I mean, after all, we really could be doing a lot worse, right? That's kind of the argument. That's not that big of a deal that I'm a little bit angry, or I'm a little bit impatient, or I'm a little bit selfish right now because I could be doing what that guy's doing. So I'm going to ask again, what are the respectable sins in your life? Let me take that a step further. Might it be that those sins are far more significant than you're giving them credit for? Might it be that there really are long-term consequences for every sin in your life? Why am I saying this? Okay, here's why I'm saying it. Because tonight... We're continuing our our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And tonight, the passage that we're looking at in Mark 15, it it shows us that some of the very sins that we've grown comfortable with, you and I have grown comfortable with, the sins that we tolerate, the sins that we think are okay, the sins that have become normal in our lives, those are the very sins, those are some of the very sins that led to Jesus' death. And I think as we look at this passage tonight, as we see these specific sins in the lives of the people in Mark 15, I think we too, if we're really honest with ourselves, will start to recognize the same sins in our own hearts, in our own lives. Let's pick up the story. Mark 15, first two verses. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Okay, what, what was the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish court in all of Israel. And just prior to these two verses, in Mark chapter 14, a lot has happened. We, we skipped over all this, admittedly, we just can't talk about everything. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is put on trial in front of this court, this Sanhedrin court, this court of religious leaders. Why? Why is he put on trial? Why is he arrested? Well, it's because these religious leaders, they wanted Jesus dead. And they needed a trial to prove that he was guilty. And they needed some evidence against him. But they ran into a problem. The problem is that they actually didn't have any legitimate evidence to do so. They didn't have any legitimate evidence to put Jesus to death, let alone arrest him. And so what they do is they twist his words. 
And they claim that Jesus speaks blasphemy against God, which would have been a very serious Jewish crime. A crime that he should have been put to death for. But again, there's a problem for the Sanhedrin because they actually didn't have the power and authority to execute criminals. It wasn't within their power. It wasn't within their jurisdiction to do so. And so they concoct another plan. They twist Jesus' words again, and they hand him over to this guy, Pilate, that we see in these first two verses for a second trial. Now, Pilate, a little bit about Pilate. Pilate wasn't a Jew. Pilate was a Roman. He was actually a Roman governor, and he was placed in Judea at the time because Judea was under the direct control of the Roman emperor. And so Pilate has the authority, the power to do what the religious leaders of Israel couldn't do. Let's pick up in verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. And so Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. See, Pilate is amazed at Jesus' response. But 700-ish years before this trial in front of Pilate, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament tells us exactly what Jesus' response would be. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 700 years before, Isaiah tells us how Jesus responded. In the face of crucifixion, in the face of death, Jesus says nothing. He's innocent, but he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say a word, and it amazes Pilate. Pick up in verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Why was there so much opposition to Jesus? I mean, after all, all the good that Jesus had done the last few years, why was there so much anger, so much hostility? Why did these religious leaders hate Jesus so much? Ironically, Pilate knew. Look again at verse 10. For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Envy. Pilate knows that the religious leaders are envious of Jesus' authority and influence. So envious that they wanted to kill him. You see, it's interesting. Envy drove the crucifixion. Have you ever thought about that? I'll, I'll be completely honest. I've actually never noticed. Envy is one of the things that leads directly to the death of Jesus. What is envy? This is what envy is. Envy is wanting somebody else's life or some aspect of it. Envy is wanting somebody else's life or some aspect of it. And closely related to envy is jealousy. In fact, oftentimes they kind of go hand in hand. Jealousy says, I want what you have. Envy says, I'm unhappy that you have it. We kind of all feel like that at times, right? I, I do. I look at what others have, and I want it. 
seeing others' success, seeing others' prosperity. Well, sometimes, if I'm completely honest, it makes me unhappy because I don't have it. I want it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you look around and you see a relationship. You see someone's clothes. You see someone's looks, their popularity. Maybe their cool travel plans over a break. Maybe it's their exec position in a fraternity or sorority. Maybe it's a steer code. Maybe it's their social media following. I don't know, whatever it is. I do know this. Sometimes in our hearts, instead of rejoicing over the good that others have in our hearts, we quietly resent the fact that we don't have it. You see, the seed of envy, it starts growing in our hearts when we look around and we see what others have and we say to ourselves, I deserve better. I deserve better than you. I deserve better than him. I deserve better than her. 2008, a psychologist by the name of Vicki Medvek, uh, she does a fa- did a fascinating study on uh, the differing attitudes of silver and bronze medalists in the Olympics. And the reason that this study came about is because Medvik was, was watching these, these, the Olympics and, and particularly the medal ceremonies, and she started to notice that there was a difference of, of the facial, facial expressions between certain athletes depending on where they uh, medal. And so this picture behind me, um, you can't see it very well, but in the center is the gold medal winner, right? And on the left is the bronze medal winner, and on the right is the silver medal winner. If you can, notice their facial expressions. Here's what this study found. I think this is fascinating. Bronze medalists were quantifiably happier than silver medalists across the board. All the studies, for years that they had done this, always, bronze medalists were quantifiably happier than silver medalists across the board. Why? Why on earth would a bronze medalist, a third-place finisher, be happier than a second-place finisher? Well, according to the research, silver medalists focused primarily on the fact that they came so close to winning gold, but they fell short. And so, in other words, their silver medal, their silver medal was just a reminder to them that they didn't get what they wanted. But on the other hand, bronze medalists, they didn't so much focus on falling short. No, Medvek... Uh, in the study, they found that bronze medalists were more focused on the fact that they nearly missed the medal podium altogether. They were just happy to be there. See, isn't it interesting? Silver medalists were envious of gold medalists. But bronze medalists, they recognized they were fortunate to have what they even had. See, I, I get it, right? Envy, really? Come on. I, I, I get it. It feels small. What, what harm does it do anyone if I'm envious? If I kind of keep it to myself? It feels insignificant. But it's not. It's not insignificant at all. It's not because it poisons our ability to be thankful. It poisons our ability to be joyful about the good that we have because we're always wanting more. Is that you? Do you find yourself always wanting more? Do you find yourself thinking you deserve better? Unhappy that you don't have what others have? Are you living like a silver medalist? I'll be honest, I I for sure do sometimes. Guilty. 
And so if that's true, if that's true of more than just me, assuming it's true of some of us at least, how do we fight envy in our lives? How do we go from having the attitude of a silver medalist to having the attitude of a bronze medalist? Well, here's how we fight envy. We fight envy by recognizing in our hearts that every good thing that we have in our lives is a gift of God's grace. You see, apart from God's grace, we would have nothing good. 2002, spring, Hannibal LaGrange College uh, up in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, students uh, coming to take a final exam. Professor hadn't arrived yet, so, you know, minutes leading up to the test, everyone's in there just kind of anxiously cramming uh, last minute. That was for sure me in college. Didn't do any good. Uh, professor comes in, starts passing the exam out. He says, don't flip it over until everyone gets it. I'll tell you to start. They had a time limit, whatever. Passes all the tests out, gets up in front, he says, okay, go ahead, flip your pages over. Class fills, flips her page over. They notice every answer on the test was already filled out. And not only was every answer filled out, their names were individually written on the test and ready. And the bottom of the last page had a note from the professor, and it said this. It said, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on this test, not because of your preparation, but because I gave it to you as a gift of grace. Where was this guy when I was in college? (laughs) See, how do you fight envy? Step back. Slow down. Look at your life and be amazed by all the good that God has done, all the good that God is doing. You see, when we start to realize that everything good that we have is a gift of God... It frees us from the burden of comparison and jealousy and envy. And it moves our hearts from a place of of sadness and unhappiness and resentment to a place of thankfulness and joy. See, I, I get it. It's really, really easy in our culture. It's really easy in college to look around and be envious of others. It really does at times feel small and insignificant, but it's not. See, the long-term effects of envy in our lives create all sorts of damage in our lives. And so God is calling us to fight that. Fight envy in our lives. Enough about envy. Back to Mark 15. Picking up the story in verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivers him over to be crucified. See, isn't it interesting? Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows that the religious leaders handed Jesus over to him because they were envious. Jesus had done no evil. And so if that's true, then then why does Pilate concede? If he knows Jesus is innocent, then why does he turn him over anyway? Why does he hand him over to be killed, to be put to death? Well, it's complex. There's a lot of things that I could say we don't have time for, but I want to focus on at least one thing. Look again at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. 
And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. See, Mark tells us that Pilate handed Jesus over because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. Pilate wanted the approval of others. Isn't that interesting that that people-pleasing, just like envy, it's another one of those seemingly insignificant, small little sins Well, it actually leads directly to the death of Jesus. 2013, a couple's making a hotel reservation for a trip uh, that they were going on. And just before they they confirm the room, uh, they notice that there's a little box. And they can kind of make a request for, I don't know, their room, whatever that is. Uh, And and they decide to have some fun with it. And so this is is what they write. This is their request. Three red M&Ms on the counter. Not packages, just three single M&Ms. One for me, one for my girlfriend, and one to split if we get hungry late at night. Oh, and a picture of bacon set on the bed. I love pictures of bacon. <laughs> this couple claims, I don't know how long after, days, weeks, months, uh, that, that when they actually checked in the hotel, they had no memory of actually doing this. It slipped their mind. And so you can imagine the surprised look on their faces when they open their door and they see this on the counter. Three red M&M's. <laughs> And then they turn the corner and they look on their bed and a picture of bacon. <laughs> you see, people, in this case, a hotel staff, will go to great lengths to get the approval of other people. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and yet his heart is exposed in that moment because he wants to satisfy the crowds. He wants the people's approval. Do you ever struggle with people-pleasing? With, with wanting the approval of others? Do you ever find yourself caring a little bit too much about what people think? We, we all do, right? I'm just going to make a blanket statement and say, look, we all do. Sorry if that offends you. My name is Kyle and I'm a people-pleaser. You see, I know what it's like to care far more about what people think of me than what God thinks of me. I know what it's like to care far more about disappointing people, maybe even some of you. I care more about that than sometimes disappointing God. Maybe you can relate. 2011, Sports Illustrated published an article. Uh, it was on the significance of home field advantage. And this is, this is the, uh, the conclusion of the article. Home field advantage is not myth. Indisputably, it exists. Across all sports, across all levels, from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL, the team hosting a game wins more often than not. Why does home field advantage work? It's not what I originally thought that it was. It's not because one team has to deal with the rigors of traveling and and the kind of pain that that is, and one team just gets to wake up and walk to wherever they're going, drive where they're going. It's not that. It's not that one team is familiar with the facility, the court, the field, they practice on all the time, and the other isn't. Pitchers don't somehow throw harder when they're at home. Basketball players don't somehow shoot better percentage free throws on their own court. So what is it? Well, according to this article, the most significant contribution to home field advantage is referee bias. See, it turns out referees don't like to get booed. (coughs) Home field crowds 
legitimately impact the game because they influence the referees. You see, it's not that referees intentionally favor the home team. The article said that actually most of it is subconscious. But the fact remains that whether they realize it or not, the referees are being influenced by the crowd. They actually do care about what the crowd thinks. That's true of all of us to some extent, right? We all care about what people think. We all want people's approval. And let me just say this. That that crave, that urge, that want, desire for approval and acceptance and value, that's not inherently wrong. Hear me say, it's not bad to want approval. You just look for it in the wrong places. That's why we overcommit ourselves. We don't want to let people down. We don't want to miss out. We don't want to be seen as lame. People-pleasing is why we avoid conflict. We don't want to say hard things to friends. We don't want to rock the boat in a relationship. Wanting the approval of others is why we drink underage, why we drink too much, why we laugh at jokes that aren't really that funny. People-pleasing is why we gossip. It's why we project a certain image on social media. See, to a certain extent, we're all a little bit like Pilate in this passage, living our lives to satisfy the crowds. But there's a problem with that. Crowds compete with God. People's approval competes with God's approval. And we can't live to please people and God at the same time. The Apostle Paul knew this. He knew it from his own life. And so this is why he writes in Galatians 1.10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Notice the either or here. Paul says it's for sure true we can live to please people. It's for sure true that we can live to please God. Not true that we can do both at the same time. It's not possible. See, Paul knows from firsthand experience. He knows from his own life that pleasing God and pleasing others are mutually exclusive. We can't follow our own ambitions in Jesus at the same time. It doesn't work. And so if we struggle with people-pleasing, how do we fight it? How do we fight people-pleasing? We can say so much, I just don't have time. But let me say a couple things. The first thing that I would say is we try to fight people-pleasing. The first step is simply recognizing the ways that we're prone to people-pleasing in our lives. (coughs) Ask yourself, where is it that you're seeking approval? Where are you looking for value? Where are you looking for your significance? In other words, know yourself. Know yourself. Second, when we fight people-pleasing, we have to recognize that we have the approval of the only one that actually matters, God. You see, the good news of the gospel, it proclaims to us that God is already pleased with us. God already approves of us because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so three, we have to fight individually, as a group, corporately. We have to fight to value, to want. To care about God's approval more than the approval of other people. See, that's because God's approval is far more satisfying than anything, anyone, 
anybody could give us. And the best news is, if you're a Christian, you already have it. You already have God's approval. You have it. I'll finish here. Who, who do you identify with in Mark 15? Which character? Do you identify with the religious leaders who struggle with envy? Hand Jesus over out of envy? Or do you identify with Pilate, the people pleaser? Maybe if you're like me, you identify with both. See, I know that it's easy to think that these sins are small sins, that they're normal, that they're somewhat petty. But if there's anything I want us to know tonight is that they're not. God says that they're significant. They wreak havoc and bring serious long-term consequences in our lives. See, God takes even the seemingly insignificant sins very serious, and so should we. As the music team comes back up here, see, when I ask that question, who do you identify with? The religious leaders, a pilot. I, I left someone out. I left someone out, and that person that I left out is Barabbas. You see, if there's anybody that I want you to identify with tonight, it's Barabbas. Why on earth Barabbas? Because Barabbas was a criminal. Because Barabbas was guilty. Because it should have been Barabbas on that cross that day. Barabbas is the one that should have been put to death, but he wasn't, was he? No, Jesus took his place. Jesus literally died that day in place of the one who was guilty. See, Barabbas is us. Barabbas is you. Barabbas is me. You and I are guilty because of sin. No sin is insignificant. But the good news is that Jesus takes our place. Jesus bears our cross. Jesus is put to death for our sin. Three days later, he rises from the grave. And in so doing, he breaks the power of death, sin, darkness in our lives. And so as we leave tonight, remember this. No sin is insignificant to God. They cost Jesus his life. And because of the amazing grace that we have in Jesus, let's be a community of people committed to fighting sin, even the sins that have become comfortable, the sins that have become normal, the sins that have become respectable in our lives. Let's fight those sins. Amen.